Okay, we're going to pray and then we'll um, work through the tongue-twisting passage that Mercy read before. I kind of wish you were preaching today, Steve, but you know how it is. I'm, I'm here now. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time we share together. We do thank you for your word and we pray that we'd understand it a bit more today and, and respond to you in the right way. Thank you for this time now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've titled the uh, sermon in your outline there, Serving God Even in the Struggle Against Sin. And struggle is um, something that, that we saw in the second half, really, of what Mercy read out today in Romans chapter 7. Life can be a struggle, can't it? Uh, think of any age of history. And I'm wondering, when has there ever been a time when life is easy in this fallen world? It wasn't just Malcolm Turnbull, no, not Malcolm Turnbull, Malcolm Fraser, who said life wasn't meant to be easy. But um, I thought he was doing pretty well, actually, in life. He was pretty wealthy and kicking on. But yeah, life is always hard in a fallen world. The notion of life as a struggle is captured in the word of the following song. See if you can recognise this song. At the end of the day, you're another day older. And that's all that can be said for the life of the poor. It's a struggle, it's a war. And there's nothing that anyone's giving. One more day standing about, what is it for? One day less to be living. Anyone recognise that? Yes, it's from Les Miserables, that's right. And if you're my dad, you'd be saying it's from that Les Miserables. But it's uh, not Les Miserables, it's a, it's a French musical. People can really understand life described that way, can't they? Life as a struggle. And there are different dimensions to the struggle in life, aren't there? There's the struggle to survive, to have food, water and clothing. There's the struggle to find love. Uh, at our place, sometimes there's even the struggle to avoid boredom and the struggle to avoid the dishes and things like that. It's a struggle, it's a war. There's nothing that anyone's giving one more day, standing about, what is it for? It's a good question, isn't it? What is life for? Is there any hope? Is there... Is there any value in struggling? Well, as we look at God's word today, the struggle that's on view is the struggle against sin. That's the struggle that Christians come up against. Is sin worth struggling against? Well, some have denied that Christians even needed to bother with this struggle. But what about you? How about you? Do you, do you struggle with sin? Is it grinding you down? Do you feel like giving up in the struggle? Well, hopefully God's word will have some encouragement for both you and I this morning. Now, the context for this chapter is coming because Paul's got two groups in the church that he's dealing with. Some have come from a Jewish background. Some have, have come from a, a pagan background where they might have been idol worshippers. But we see that He's dealing with this topic of the law and some criticism that Paul's faced has come from people with that law background. They've said, look, if, you've, if you don't have the old covenant, then it's probably the case that you're not even going to worry about sin. That criticism came because Paul's gospel pointed to the fact that uh, salvation and life with God comes without being under the old covenant. And so they thought, well, if there's no old covenant, if, if there's no law of Moses, 
then life would just be characterised by the Christians as licentiousness, just indulging in sin, revelling in sin. And that sort of argument's come up earlier in this book of Romans. If you turn to chapter 3, verse 8, if you're just flipping through your Bibles there, I'll read 3, verse 8. Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. These people are saying, look, if you don't have the, the law, just go and do evil. That shows God's goodness even more. And in last week, in chapter 6, verse 15, Paul deals with the topic of whether Christians should continue to sin or not. Uh, 6.15 says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? E.g., since we're not under the old covenant, we're under the new covenant, should we just continue to sin? So Paul's critics are saying, Paul's message just leads to more sinning. Now, it's in this chapter, Paul's saying, ultimately, by the end of it, there is a struggle with sin that Christians have. But it's still true that they're not under the old covenant. Let's begin and have a look at this now in chapter 7. As I said earlier, Paul begins to address Christians that seem he might have had a Jewish background. We see that in verse 1, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. That seems to be him directing his attention to those Jews from a Christians from a Jewish background. And he's underscoring there is a new life that they've been called to. And it's a type of change that's happened described as a, a release or a discharge from the law. Let me read from verse 1 and 2. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So far, so good. Paul's saying, picture a situation when a husband has died and the wife is no longer considered married to him. Which sounds kind of logical, doesn't it? You know, he's died, we, we, we're with him so far. But the point is, she's now free to remarry. Paul makes that point a bit clearer in what follows from verse 3. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and he's not an adulteress if she marries another man. We're starting to see where he's going. This is, he's using this analogy to talk about a change in the covenants. Those who were once Jews under the old covenant are a bit like the woman whose husband died. That's, that's who they're sort of identifying with. That old covenant arrangement, his time is now finished. That covenant's come to an end. And that's a bit like the husband who's died. And so in this situation, the woman is free to remarry. And the analogy holds true that the people of the old covenant are now free to become members of the new covenant. There is a release. There is freedom that's reinforced in verse 4. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ 
that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So to sum this section up, just like the woman who's released from her dead husband who's now free to remarry, Paul's saying that Jews have been released from the old covenant, they've died to the law through the body of Christ and the result is that they can serve God in the new covenant, serve in the new way of the spirit. There's a change. They're, they're free to serve under the new covenant. Not to serve in the old way of the written code, but in the new way of the spirit. Now the analogy, did you notice that it breaks down a little bit? Uh, on the one hand, Paul's saying Christians have died and on the other hand, he's saying Christians are figuratively speaking free to remarry. Uh, but the concept is... Uh, Christians are, are released from the old covenant and they're free to be members of the new covenant. Where the analogy was that the, the actual, the husband died, not the, not the wife. So that, that's just how it lines up. But we, we get the concept. Now Paul's tapping into the idea that uh, now that they've moved on to the new covenant, there's room to actually not just indulge in sin. He doesn't talk about, you know, Christians, now that you're members of the new covenant, you can do what you like. It's not like that. The challenge is now to bear fruit for God. That's what we, we see. Not reveling in sin, but living by the Spirit. And so at this point in the story, we've got to remind ourselves once again that Paul's come into criticism. Some have argued that his gospel, apart from law, leads to a license to sin, leads to indulging in sin. But in this chapter, he's going to say, no, there is still a struggle against sin, but that doesn't mean that Christians come under the under the Old Testament law. They serve in the new way of the Spirit as we see in verse 6. Now, in the past, sometimes Christians might have been tempted to not think that they are the legitimate people of God. They might have been tempted to think by, uh, from people from a Jewish background that they've got to take on the Old Covenant. And so they might have taken on some of the food laws or thought that they've needed to circumcise their children. Uh, some might have felt they even needed to take arms and fight for the Lord or even take back land in Palestine, the promised land, which we're told is actually a, a shadow of a heavenly reality. And even today, sometimes Christians can be influenced um, to think that they've got to come under the old covenant laws like food laws and so they don't feel like they're free to eat sweet and sour pork at the Chinese restaurant because that food was unclean under the old covenant. But the message here is that Christians are released. They've been discharged from being under the law. They've moved from the old covenant to the new covenant. It doesn't, God's word doesn't lay it on our conscience to stop eating sweet and sour pork when we go to the Chinese restaurant. And to be frank, I'm really glad about that because I think sweet and sour pork's terrific. So I'm kind of liberated by this passage too. Furthermore, it doesn't uh, lay it on our conscience to circumcise our children. I'll say less about that, but um, suffice, to say, <laughs> suffice to say, there is this release that's being spoken about here to serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I hope that's pretty clear. 
Now I want to just make things just a little bit muddier. The fact is, life lived under the old covenant still has a few overlaps with life lived in the new covenant. Uh, let me illustrate this for a moment. Some of the ways we live by the Spirit in the new covenant, they're still consistent with aspects of the old covenant. Uh, for example, the obligation of children to obey their parents in the old covenant, um, Paul brings to the attention of children as members of the new covenant. That's something that overlaps. Um, the idea that we shouldn't lie to each other or steal from each other, commit adultery, uh, murder or covet, those things were commanded under the old covenant, but they also follow through to the new covenant too. In fact, I don't think when we go to be with the Lord in heaven, uh, there's going to be you know, people lying to each other or what stealing might look like then. I don't think it's going to happen either. So there's some things that seem to be continuous through both covenants right through to heaven. And so those values and those way of life uh, do continue and, and we'll live out lives by God's spirit where we don't you know, kill and lie and steal, that, that type of thing. But we'll do that not because we're under the old covenant. We serve in the new way of the spirit. Paul's got more to say about serving in the new way of the spirit in chapter 8, but suffice to say he doesn't bring us back under the old covenant. This is some of what's said in chapter 8, verse 5. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. Suffice to say, those who live by the Spirit are now called not to be reveling in sin and just treating life as though sin doesn't matter. The challenge is now to bear fruit to God. So Paul's not against the law per se. He's just against the idea that Christians are going to be dragged back under that old covenant. He's against the idea of legalism. And he's against the idea that uh, some people might use the law in such a way to imply that, say, even Gentiles aren't the legitimate people of God. He also acknowledges that ultimately the, the law is not the problem, but sin is the problem. And that's what we see in the next section. I've titled that in point three of my sermon outline, if you're looking on there. Our enemy is not the law, but sin. Let's have a read of this section. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. 
did that which is good then become death to thee? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Now, did you get all that? Uh, these verses are to some extent tricky and have been interpreted in different ways. Uh, some have drawn attention that it looks like Paul's looking back over his own life. You see that in verse 9. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. And some have observed that that might be Paul referring to his uh, boyhood when he's moving from his infancy and coming of age as he came to understand the law more as an adult. But even for Paul, uh, ultimately it wasn't the law that's the big problem, it's sin the problem is the problem, not the law per se. Now I'm going to try and break this uh, down into, it's the same way you eat an elephant, isn't it? You, know, you break it down into pieces, you just eat little pieces at a time, that's the way, you, that's the, way the joke goes anyway, to eat the elephant. So the joke's going flat here. <laughs> Okay, the take-home message can be broken down as follows. Point one, even though Christians have been released from the old covenant, that doesn't make the law sinful. And how do we know that? Well, because Paul tells us in verse 7, is the law sinful? Certainly not. Okay, that's the first point. Even though we're not under that old covenant, that doesn't make the law sinful. Number two, the law is good. And it can be used well and if it's handled correctly. It is useful because it names sin. Sin like covetousness. You see that in verse 7. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. So the law makes it very clear what sin is. And so that's a good use of the law. Number three. Although the law names sin in the end... Sin is the problem, not law. But the law tends to provoke sin too. That's what Paul notes. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Now this is just a, a, a tricky idea here. So sin's the problem, but the law seems to provoke sin. Now I'll tell you a, a little illustration just on the run here. Uh, it'd be like... Um, you probably don't think about breaking into your neighbour's house, at a guess. You're a good bunch of people, a um, bunch of simple people. Um, you probably don't think about breaking into your neighbour's house, but if your neighbour goes on holidays and then gives you their keys, it might actually cross your mind. Wow, I've got the keys to this house. I think that's the kind of thing that's being said here. You, you wouldn't even think about it until you get given the keys and you realise, wow, I've got actually... Yeah, don't tell my neighbours this, by the way. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's what Paul's sort of saying here. You see, when the, well, as soon as the law says don't covet, you think, oh, gee, oh, coveting. Yeah, okay. We see that sort of thing in verse 11 as well. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, me, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. Verse 12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Paul is clear. The law is good, it names sin, 
And in this respect, it also has a prophetic function. That sounds good, doesn't it? It points us to the need for a saviour. But the law doesn't save. Only God is the one who saves. Only God is the one who forgives and delivers us from eternal death. He does that through his son, not through the law. Jesus, in his love and kindness, comes and carries out the law completely on our behalf. We blunder and disobey. We disobey the spirit of the law and the letter of the law, but Jesus fulfills it all on our behalf and we're united to him through faith. Isn't that wonderful news? So then let's try to get some application here. The application point in the outline, once again, is the place of the law in our Christian life. Well, it has a prophetic function. It points us to our need for a saviour. Furthermore, it uh, names sin and shows us the things we need to turn away from and repent from. But also, did you know that we can learn from the wisdom of the law? Christians can learn from the law something about God's character and his intentions for humanity. I can give you a couple of examples of this. Even though Paul says we're not under the law, he still quotes it in numerous places. In chapter 12, verse 19, he quotes Deuteronomy, Do not take revenge my friends but leave room for God's wrath for it is written here we go it is mine to avenge I will repay says the Lord and Paul's quoting the law Deuteronomy 32 verse 25 there and he's using the law to support the call for not retaliating and so Paul's saying we're not under the law but we can learn from the wisdom of it he does that in a number of other places throughout the New Testament I've already referred to the example of children obeying their parents in Ephesians, he says, the law with its commandments and ordinances has been abolished. And then later in the book, he says, children, obey your parents. That's what it says in the law. Furthermore, he says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. That's actually a quote from the law. But he's saying that that applies to paying gospel ministers. And so the point here is that even though we're not under the law, the law's still good. We need to handle it carefully. And it has a prophetic dimension where it points to the need for a saviour. And it has a wisdom dimension. We can learn something of God's character and care for people. Something for God's intention for humanity. But that doesn't mean we're under the old covenant. Instead, we are members of the new covenant. And that's in the blood of Jesus, who delivers us from the consequences of sin. And he brings us God's forgiveness. That, that's the good news. We need God's forgiveness because we continue to struggle with sin. And that's what we see in this next section. Point four, the struggle we have in this age is really shown in verses 14 through to 25. I'm going to read that. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, 
it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. The essence here once again is that the law is good, even though we're not under the law as we've seen earlier. And Paul reminds us that, okay, even though we're not under the law, that doesn't mean Christians don't struggle with sin. He does struggle with sin. And there's something of a dilemma presented here that even though we agree with God's will and want to do what's right, uh, we see in verse 21, so I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. This is Paul's dilemma in this age. And it's the kind of struggle that you and I encounter and it reflects there's a battle going on with, within us. I'm sure that's your experience, isn't it? And how do you find it? Do you find it a frustration? Do you find it discouraging? Does it grind you down that there is a battle with sin? Well, Paul gets a bit frustrated too. He gets exasperated. We see that in verse 24. What a wretched man I am. And in that place, he starts to grapple with what hope there is. Who will, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's got this expectation that even though in this age there is a struggle with sin, that is frustrating, that is exasperating, that grinds us down and wears us down, Paul looks in the right place for hope. And he talks a little bit later in Romans about uh, this deliverance from this body of death. Uh, in Romans chapter 8 verse 18 he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, the glorious freedom of the children of God. Paul's looking forward to this new age when there's a deliverance from this body of death, a rescue from it where we don't have to deal with this struggle with sin and the frustrations that go with that. So if you're feeling discouraged at times that there is this struggle, um, at one level we've got to readjust our expectation that that's just the character of this age. As I get to be a skinnier, balder, older guy, if I make it into, my, into a nursing home one day, I'm still sure that there's going to be a struggle with sin even then um, and we've just got to accept that that's the character of this age. But Paul ultimately looks to his comfort in God. He ultimately looks forward to that deliverance uh, and recognises that there, is a, there will be a change in the ages. There will be a time that comes when sin is a thing of the past. And so in this uh, season of struggle that we have, we've got to look at Paul's hope and, and make that our own as well and maintain our hope in the future sense of salvation. It is true that we've been saved now. We, we got saved when we trusted Jesus. We, we're saved as we trust in him. But there's also a future sense in which we look forward to salvation. 
So the challenge now is to accept that this is the, a bit of a, a struggly stage um, and, and don't, don't get too ground down by it, but let's continue to serve God now and continue to struggle against sin. Let's be those who bear fruit for God, uh, not just indulge in sin. So let's, let's continue that, that battle. Let us bow in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Lord, we, we do thank you that we've been um, released from an old covenant and that we've been made your children and serve in the new way of the Spirit as members of the new covenant. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be those who do bear fruit for you, that we'd be characterised um, by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness and self-control. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be those who do continue to struggle against sin and to uh, resist it and forsake it. And we pray for your help to keep battling uh, in this age until uh, you return and take us to be with you. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness in uh, giving us the law that does um, teach us about our need for a saviour. And we pray that... Um, we would continue to turn away from things that are ungodly. We do thank you for Jesus and all that he's done and that he does uh, free us from the condemnation of the law. We thank you for the fact that he, he lived your way and, and achieved salvation for, for us through his sacrifice. Lord, we pray that you'd strengthen us uh, to continue to love and serve you and to hold out our hope for that time of salvation into the future. Well, we thank you for this time now and we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.